Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. And history. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. I'm Daisy. So much more than what you see. We all live our lives differently. Kaleidoscope identity. And this is who I'm meant to be. I'm just labelled me. I'm just labelled me. this episode along with lucy crying and alice swearing there's going to be a number of historical terms for disability that are now considered extremely offensive hello everyone welcome to the label podcast uh this week with me and hopefully lucy provided she doesn't completely lose her voice before the end of the episode uh and we also have daisy with us this week and i think my cat which bodes well um so <laughs> that's we'll the most important yeah her mic her mic might be muted halfway through like because the cat's stood on a button or something but oh i'm more concerned that he's going to just decide to do what he always does which is randomly knock shit off the shelves yes Uh, my office is an absolute hellhole at the moment anyway so um he can't really make it worse but he can certainly make it noisy right okay it's fine we'll deal with it yeah uh, <laughs> Daisy, so, it's yeah. lovely to see you <laughs> and you as always yeah it's uh, we haven't done a history lesson apart from the one we saw in Leicester. i think we only did two last year two history lessons the live ep and then i can't remember who audrey lord audrey lord that was it we've only done two so i think yeah. uh it is my new year's resolution to do more history lessons in 2023 Wait, no, if you, make a res- yeah, if you make a resolution to do more history lessons, that's just giving me more work. <laughs> well, it's just so I can see your nice face, that's all. You know. Can, can, is I that mean, how New Year's resolutions work? My New Year's resolution is to make someone do else my do head. more work? Look, 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 they do in my head, okay? I don't know. Uh. <laughs> 2023, okay. you get to see more of me. Like, uh, <laughs> hi. I mean, you don't have to anyway. be doing history for that. <laughs> <laughs> I I, I've had too many quality street. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. It's just just a sugar high yeah. for the past six days. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what day it is. <laughs> anyway. Um... My bag of chocolate is too far away. <laughs> <laughs> Daisy, who are we talking about today? We are going to discuss someone called Harriet Martineau. Right. Okay. So she's come up quite a bit. I I was confused about whether we'd covered her before because... I think we may have mentioned her in a previous episode. Mm. Yeah, there is a chance of that. Basically, I found loads of notes and things on my laptop. And so I've been convinced that we haven't covered her. No, other we than haven't. potentially a mention. We yeah, we definitely haven't covered her already. Don't don't panic no. about that. Yeah, good. <laughs> we probably like mentioned her, and then uh, uh, Daisy's gone. We'll talk about her in another episode. Maybe that's I think what has happened. Yeah, quite possibly because um, she has a connection to Bristol, which is yeah where I am, and mm-hmm. also a connection to mesmerism yes oh yes probably why we talked about yes i remember the mesmerism episode 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, wasn't that this year, actually? Marie last Teresa year. Von Paradis. Last so, year. Was, yes, sorry, last year. So <laughs> wasn't that, but that was, that was 2022. We'd, so that was, that's four. Wasn't that year. the one where he was like, come and lie with me in this bath of magnets? Yes, more or yeah. less, yeah. Yeah, that covers it, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> See, I do listen. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, like I'm yeah. going to stick a metal rod in a bath, and now you're cured. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, come and lie with me in this nice warm bath with it. Watch that rod. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> I've just realised how that sounds. Get your minds out of the gutter. <laughs> oh, it's good okay. stuff. Okay. Okay. So Harriet, Harriet Martineau. Yeah. So she is seen as the first female sociologist. Oh, okay. And also one of very few women around the this time. So this is kind of early 19th century, early to mid, I guess, because of how human lives work. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Fortunately, she didn't only live for about six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she was one of very few women who was able to actually, you know, make a living with her writing. Uh, and she was incredibly popular in her time. And even the then Princess Victoria was a big fan of hers, hmm. to the point where um, Harriet actually attended her coronation. Oh. Apparently it was really long. You were, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that. Is it a standard uh, thing that coronations are real? I know this is going off topic, but, you know, it's very on brand for us. Is it a standard thing? Thing. There's a lot of God to talk about and a lot yeah. of like, scepter waving and stuff. Here, this is and... yours now. Be careful with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Are they historically like a long thing? Oh, I mean, yeah, she took a sandwich. <laughs> okay. I mean, that, that's how I'm going to start measuring units of time. Yeah. Do, I need to ta- do I need to take a snack? In fact, I think she took a sandwich and a book. Uh, right. Wow. Is that, so are, you actually, are you actually joking or did she actually take no, a sandwich? No, no, no. No, she had to lean on a pillow with a book and a sandwich until she felt refreshed, as she called it. <laughs> okay. Right. Wow. I, I guess. Fabulous. I don't know, the only thing I really know about coronations is that they sing that Zadok the Priest song. Uh, I've never heard that song. We, we will probably hear it oh, this you, year, though, won't we? You, you will have done, just not will I? known what just it sounds like. Yeah. Do, it's probably... do, do you want to give us a few bars? <laughs> <laughs> Go on, then. <laughs> Zadok! Oh, that one. Oh, that one. Yeah. That big, (laughs) that big hit. Yeah. Yeah. She she was basically mates with Queen Victoria. I mean, it doesn't sound like she was like BFFs because she had to bring her own sandwich. Yeah. Like like the Queen's She's not invited to the buffet after, is she, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this was pretty much like, you know, some kind of big event at the time, kind of, you know, socially as well as. It's like mm. I, I can I I imagine the coronation that we'll see um mm. in May. Yeah. When, at, whenever it is. At yeah. time of recording we believe it may be May. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but j- just make sure you know that the reason that we don't know isn't because they haven't announced it yet, it's because no. we forgot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. We yeah. don't care enough to have remembered <laughs> that information. Do we get a day off? That's what I care about. I think so. Yeah, that's, mm, yeah. We, that's yeah, the I idea. would imagine. Yeah, 
How else are we going to yes. watch it from the pub? Well, I was going to say, I'm still not going. But... <laughs> what we... No, will... I... no you're not going. No. <laughs> there will be thousands of people standing on the street being like, oh yeah, I was oh, at the coronation. It's a disabled person's worst nightmare, isn't it, really? That, you know, going in that throng of people. You wouldn't be able to we see anything. To the millennium, uh, for the millennium, we went, my dad decided to take us to Westminster Bridge, not the Wobbly Bridge, but Westminster Bridge, with another 10,000 Londoners. Yeah, well me, done. And I was, I was 13, so my poor little brother would have been about eight. Yeah. And my dad's like, well, I'm going to make you stand outside in the cold in New Year's Eve at like eight years old until one o'clock in the morning Lovely. the best that he could do was bring two flasks of hot chocolate one with booze in them that i wasn't allowed any of it was and it was it was a disabled person's nightmare did like, he yeah. have a sandwich like no literally just the hot chocolate oh. I, I assume he fed us beforehand yeah but i would hope it was so. one, of those things, one of those things where we had to get there hours early there was a lot of standing which you know that's not a a disability issue for me it's a lazy person issue for me um and like crowds and dark no. and my dad was like oh look at all the boats and i was like i can't i can't I'm trying <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it was uh it's not those sorts of events are not necessarily the most inclusive no just stay out and watch it on the telly the cameraman's got a good shot it's fine <laughs> he's got a good view it's all right yeah well, and Hugh Edwards will be there describing everything as well. Oh, so. God bless Hugh Edwards. Bless him. He's the most hardworking journalist <laughs> in the world at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah, there was just like a week where they just wouldn't let him go home. <laughs> you can tell by anything. He's like, please let me lie down. I felt so bad for him. Like, at one point, Clive Myrie turned up for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so he could have a wee and a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, he's doing fine. Let him stay for a bit longer and let Hugh Edwards have a nap. God. <laughs> bless him. Uh, so... Uh, she had to have a rest at the coronation. I assume that was because she has a uh, problem with energy levels. Well, yes. Indeed, you are accurate. Mm. <laughs> Get me extrapolating from the information provided. <laughs> you nailed it. Good job. <laughs> she was partially deaf and chronically ill from birth. She was seen as like a okay. sickly child, as mm -hmm. you know, people in the 19th century were often referred to mm. i should start yeah. calling myself sickly <laughs> it does have quite a sort of a ring of like um tiny tim of, i was gonna say it feels it feels a bit sort of highborn and elegant doesn't mm. it i'm like, sickly like, i'm sorry i can't yeah. call i'm sickly i have to take to my bed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just dead posh <laughs> yeah whereas the rest of us are going around going i'm fucking knackered <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so I mean, her illnesses you know, blamed on a lot of different things by a lot of different members of her family. Her mother thought that it was the wet nurse's fault because they, they were a sort of, you know, relatively well-to-do family. So they had wet nurses rather than, you know, her mother breastfeeding her children herself. Here is a maid who has also relatively recently had a baby. Mm -hmm. You breastfeed my child. Yes. I mean... I'm adopting partly because I don't want to have to have my own baby. I would like someone else to do the dirty work for me. So I can see the appeal. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, it makes 
makes sense. But the, yeah, the the allegation, as it were, was that um, is that the wet nurse didn't provide enough milk for Harriet in her first few weeks of life, and so she was undernourished. Right. And so did that wet famously nurse... that yeah. causes deafness and and chronic illness. Did the wet nurse that was responsible for like looking after her and feeding her and stuff? Did she like face any like reprimands because she was she hadn't provided enough milk or was it like it's your fault thanks for that <laughs> we'll 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 take over now i mean supposedly she tried to continue sort of long after she you know run out of milk or whatever it was but we, but i you know we don't know specifically no. although there was you know later poor treatment of the various staff which um harriet was very against mm-hmm. i think um the idea that uh, that her chronic illness and stuff was caused by undernourishment makes a little bit more sense than what uh, some of the, the family theories for Maria uh, von Paradis' blindness, which, if I remember correctly, one of them included hearing a loud noise. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, comparatively, it's yeah. almost normal. I, and I suppose when you don't know what science is, anything kind of anything goes doesn't it well yeah i mean harriet herself thought that you know quite a bit of it could just be down to she called it milk radically disagreeing with her so i guess by that she means being lactose intolerant or allergic to milk Mm -hmm. or you know something Mm -hmm. like that yeah but i mean she attributed a lot of it to you know her mother being not particularly you know nice or caring and so you know she was quite an unhappy child you know she she felt like she'd been abandoned to the wet nurse mm. as it were and her you know mother wasn't particularly bothered about her she writes in her mm. autobiography that she was about seven years old before she realized that anyone like cared about her oh which is sad. sad has she got any like brothers or sisters yes yeah, so she feel the same yeah she was the sixth of eight okay of, right eight six of eight yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean i i suspect there's probably an element of mum just constantly trying not to be incontinent after six kids that she's probably a bit busy to be caring for her child well, yeah and i think it's also just because you know they were quite Jesus they were Christ. quite <laughs> they were quite well off and so you know they had the money for staff and servants mm. so they would I don't use think them. it was unusual was it no not particularly not for you know but i suppose if it made harriet feel neglected then i shouldn't um shouldn't undermine her personal experience of trauma yeah i mean she was she was sent off to live in all sorts of different places due to her you know delicate health kind of you know like you know like people would be sent away to the seaside because of yeah. their lungs or mm. something yeah mm. Get some fresh air in your lungs, you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Go and listen to the sea for a bit. It's all right. Yeah, my my nan was my nan had rheumatoid arthritis when she was a child, and she was sent off to a sanatorium for like a year mm. at like six. So it's again, I think it was kind of normal, and that was my nan in the nineteen twenties. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't particularly unusual. She was first sent away when she was like two years old. Mm. um to stay with it was it was like a family that you know her family knew it wasn't just strangers but um yeah they were the, they were a methodist 
family, and she returned as a very tiny preacher. She would just walk around randomly declaring, a duty first, pleasure later. Right, okay, wow. And made made her own little, like, books with these sayings in. (laughs) Okay. That's that's classic kids, though. It is. they, They... They hear stuff and they're like, like just going to repeat things. And I 100%. When I was a child, I went through a stage of uh, primary school for my teddy bears where I made full on books for them to read and then worksheets and stuff for them. Wow. <laughs> what? That's an insight. I, I grew up commitment. in North London. I wasn't allowed outside. So. <laughs> that That's a whole episode on its own, that, Alice. <laughs> Wow. I'd be interested to try doing those worksheets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can get... That's going to be the next Christmas present. You know, when we send one to, like a Christmas present to the team. It'll just be like a worksheet done by Alice. The worksheets that I made when I was nine. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, is it, Here's a word search. <laughs> what, what, what level was it at? Was it easier because, you know, they're bears? Or was it like... <laughs> I I think that it was genuinely the little books that I made were like <laughs> I, so I made them out of out of like little bits of coloured paper which I then <laughs> do a, a hole punch and loop together with string so that you could actually turn the pages and then I I would write little stories in the books and then I genuinely believed that the worksheets were related to stuff that happened in the stories. So okay. you'd okay. also have to read my stories first. Sure, I mean, yeah, the background reading. Like... That's, that's a given. <laughs> Did the head teacher of the teddy bear school give you non-contact time to make sure that you could get all your worksheets done <laughs> and marked afterwards? We are subject mean... to Ofsted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that the head teacher of the teddy bear primary school, aka my mum, was just pleased that I was somewhere being quiet. <laughs> yeah, um, the good point. Something which I have not done ever since. <laughs> no. You tried it out, didn't like it. No. Went back to started a podcast. Tried it out, tried it out, didn't like it, started a podcast. <laughs> well, I, tr- I tried to make my dogs sit down and read books with me, but they were just really bad students. Yeah, so. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, they've got that, sort of yeah. free will, haven't they? <laughs> My teddy bears wanted to be there. They were yeah, committed to learning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're probably a bit smarter than dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> certainly smarter than my dogs. <laughs> anyway, that's a bit of bonus content we can add uh, for listeners. We're going to have an episode about Alice's teddy bear school. Uh, no, but that yeah. can lead us through to Harriet's education. Know. Yeah. <laughs> so she started off being schooled at home because, you know, she was so sickly and, you know, sort of her deafness kind of got worse throughout her childhood. So, you mm. know, she was supposed to use like an ear trumpet, you know, one of those big cone things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, never actually did. No. And so she was taught at home for many years, which was apparently a source of teasing amongst her siblings. I don't really understand why, um, no. but I, I think, you know, kids I mean, are mean for weird reasons, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. And also, I think, I suspect there's a level of, like, as much as, 
as much as like when I, I can distinctly remember when I was a kid, my brother was ill and like was off school. And as much as I liked going to school, because again, I was one of those children, I was also like, but he gets to stay at home with you all day. It's like, can I, can I be sick too? So I imagine it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, any it's probably to be mean it's probably a little yeah a little bit of jealousy isn't it like oh you but get yeah, to stay at also, home yeah yeah yes and and she specifically speaks of how um her mother taught her french and so mm. maybe if she hadn't been particularly available for all of the kids yeah there was a bit of you know oh you get to spend time with mom yeah. which mm-hmm. we don't but yeah so yeah i was trying to get my head around because they were saying her mother taught her french which was her father's first language Okay. So, okay, and then her father taught her Latin. So, okay, it seems like your dad maybe could have taught you the French. It d- given that it seemed like an odd way round to do it, but I suppose if if time is short and he speaks Latin and Mum doesn't, yeah, I guess. But I mean, you know, who am I to judge I... these people's? Is is that not what this entire episode is about? Well, yeah, I suppose. I, I, I... <laughs> um making judgments on all of these people's decisions yeah it's fine they're dead now yeah um Um, so how long was harriet um schooled at home for was it like until she was of school living age or did she go to school for a bit or how did that work yeah no she she went on to a regular school when she was about nine okay okay um, which is like a a little religious school because her family were um unitarians um which is, you know, I, I don't know if you're like me and don't particularly know the difference between all of the various denominations of Christianity. But essentially... I know I know that there's there's one that believes in the Virgin and then there's all the other ones. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure all churchgoers will agree. <laughs> but essentially, essentially what I figure is it the, the Unitarians were a bit more... Um, I guess open and liberal than a lot of other denominations. So, like, it was it was a given that all of the girls would have the same conventional okay. education that all of the boys would, um, even though they weren't. You know, the boys would be aimed towards like a career and making a living, and the girls mm. would be more, you know, towards sewing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know, the pa- parents wanted them all to be able to, you know, read and write and think and stuff, but also never wanted harriet to be seen in public holding a pen what yeah i know it's a bit strange what but also it's a very specific thing to be like no you can't do that yeah i'm wondering if it was this kind of you know oh it'll be threatening to you know men who might want to marry you if you're seen to be too intelligent uh yeah 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 but weirdly i watched a you know in bridgerton there's this kind of element as well where it's kind of, you know, oh, you can, you know, read, but you have to sit on the sofa and just so yes, if we yes. have visitors to the house. Yeah. Put the book away. Put yeah. the book away. They can't yeah. know that you can read. Yeah. How dare you? I, I imagine for Harriet, who's, you know, got hearing loss, not being able to, like, have a pen handy, that could be a really easy way of sort of communicating Mm. with other people so that's really that's like particularly restrictive for her Mm. yeah i mean you know later on there wasn't it seems that there wasn't too much uh like 
objection or fighting for her to, you know, be able to write for a living. You know, once it got to that point, everyone was kind of like, okay, yeah, fair enough. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of, you know, one of these things that was impressed upon her as she was growing, growing up. Yeah. But um, this, you know, religious school that she went to when she was nine, where she was, you know, taught about history and politics and, you know, all of these sorts of things, which kind of really raised her interest in well, what would we would know as sociology. You know, back then it had all sorts of other different names that I are also you wouldn't see the words and go, oh yes, sociology. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, supposedly she first became interested in politics when Admiral Nelson died. Okay. Full of so she, full of callbacks this episode, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's true, I didn't think of that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then she became interested in social justice when she was when she was, was it when she heard about Rosemary Kennedy. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but that would have been that great put for the, so I many reasons. That would have put the, that would have put the tin hat on it, wouldn't it? Really? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not standing for this. <laughs> no, it was, it was when she would be told to take rude notes to the staff of the servants, okay. and she really hated that they were treated so badly yeah i've not been able to find any content of these rude notes that's what i was just gonna ask <laughs> something like you suck your milk is terrible i don't know but <laughs> this is your I, fault <laughs> it feels even sort of like even more passive aggressive to be like i'm gonna write a note and then i'm gonna send the kid to deliver mm. it like mm. i'm not gonna like you know if my manager yeah. sent a, a like the the administrator in with like a snotty note for me instead of coming in and going you fucked up that spreadsheet i'd be really annoyed (laughs) yeah i guess it's you know maybe they're not gonna yell at a kid but they probably wouldn't be yelling at their employer master Uh, yeah employer thank you i don't know i don't have servants no, I don't. I don't know how these things work. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's it, I, that, that's a bit cowardly, isn't it? Really, if you're not happy yeah. with somebody or don't like something somebody's done, then say it to their face themselves. Don't send some poor little kid to send a snotty nosed message. You smell. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah. Like spit me. Yeah. Unnecessary. Unnecessary. So yeah, so she, yes, she was interested in you know politics and history and stuff. You know, anyway, just from you know hearing this about this stuff growing up. But when she went to this school, she was able to you know fully study these sorts of subjects with Mm. you know her her teacher, who was kind of you know a great inspiration to her, and you know kicked off a love of learning. Um, the sources I read were also very specific to point out that she was incredibly self-conscious during this time, partly due to her deafness, partly due to her poor handwriting, and also her hair. Her hair? Yeah. Right. I wasn't able to find any explanation of what in particular it was about her hair that she was right. so self-conscious about. Um, yeah. So we're just going to have to fill in the gaps there. So my guess is Curly. again i was very specifically bullied as a teenager because my hair was just kind of 
poofy. Yeah, just that sort so. of curly where it's just you can't do anything everywhere. with it, kind of. Yeah, like just like an explosion of mm. yeah. And, um, and of course, this is the days before like oils and mooses and stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. If it's like if it's out of control, it's out of control all day. Sorry about that, yeah. babe. Kind of thing. Yeah, get, get someone. Get the girls from GHDs. Yeah. Should be uh, fine. Yeah. I um. I think though, for me, I think uh, every uh, at a point in my life, I think I was very self conscious of who I am. Like who i was and how i looked and the fact that it's like i got a sudden realization that even though i went to school with disabled kids once i was not at school like on the weekends and stuff and out and about with my sister i knew that i was different because people would stare at me and stuff like that and it did make me feel very self-conscious as a as a teenager you do don't you so <laughs> i found hair dye I, if they're staring at me i'm gonna give them something to stare at <laughs> you know what i, I mean and I, I think that that like you know if if this young woman's having to walk around school carrying an ear, ear trumpet, trumpet like you're gonna know that people are looking at you and so you're perhaps going to be even more aware of what you might perceive as an imperfection yeah because you'll think everybody's looking at me they look at me and they're like, look at her ear trumpet and her hair. And I still so. get it now to a certain extent, you know, like how my hand, because of my cerebral palsy, how my hands move when I'm picking stuff up and I'm, I'm using things. I get very self-conscious about that. But at the same time, there is a bit, now I'm older, there is a bit of me that like, oh, I don't like how my hands look. Well, if you don't like how your hands look, do they still work? Yes. Do you know what I mean? They, they might look a bit claw-like. They still work. Get over yourself, Lucy. There is that level of... But as a teenager, when you're growing up and start, you know, getting used to your own body and the way it works, I can understand how she'd feel self-conscious about things like her hair and, you know, even down to her handwriting. I can understand that as well. Because, I mean, there was no computers in those days. You couldn't hide your handwriting behind typeface, could you? Yeah, although, I mean, her handwriting can't have been as bad as some people I know. No, my handwriting is terrible. It's like a yeah, my handwriting's fine to start. Yeah, and it's, then and then and then, then, and then my yeah, and then my hand stops cooperating and it just yeah. becomes scribbles. What does that say? <laughs> it's like you're doing a shorthand in a courtroom. Yeah, except people understand that. <laughs> Definitely noticed over the Christmas period that I have a tendency to stop paying attention halfway through words and sentences uh-huh so several of my christmas cards would be like wishing you and your family a very merry all the best for the new year lots of love <laughs> a very <laughs> merry happy distra- birthday jesus <laughs> uh, just or like um <laughs> i uh i got my I, my cat got my husband some jelly beans for Christmas. Right. There's this cute little TikTok of a kid going, oh, look at the beans. It's such a shame. Uh, the a cat's paw. And I wrote that in the tag, except I stopped paying attention. And so I just put B-E-A. And just that was the end of that <laughs> word, I decided. There you go. Happy Christmas. <laughs> From the cat. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah i just wanted to, to to note that that i understand how she felt i think 
as a teenager, it was different and chronically ill because I felt it too. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who is the same and who, who went through a period of time and felt like they were otherly or a bit I weird. Mean, I- I I genuinely believe that that's not just a disabled experience. No. I think that most able-bodied teenagers, um, yeah, exactly. I think young young women in particular feel incredibly self-conscious because there is an expectation to look and behave and present yourself in a certain way, and if anything about you doesn't fit that, whether mm. it's because you're too tall or you're heavier or you know, I've got a friend who I am always like, she's always complaining about how she thinks she's mannish because she's tall and broad shouldered. And I'm like, you're a size 12 and you're taught like you're, you're tall, like a supermodel. What are you talking about? You're stunning. Yeah. But it is that, you know, every bit, I think I don't know anyone who didn't hate themselves for a bit when they were a teenager and i think as a disabled person you know everybody goes to it but as a disabled person it's heightened isn't it as well because you think oh my god this is stark stemmingly obvious i'm odd and a bit wonky like i always describe myself as like the wonky fruit and veg in morrison's that's how i describe myself again i think it i i don't necessarily think that's exclusive to the disabled experience i suspect it is if you you know, I suspect that there are trans young people who have yeah. a very similar experience. Um, I suspect that, again, anybody who doesn't feel like they are, that they look like an Instagram model mm-hmm. probably feels the same. Please continue, Anyway, that was da- nice and depressing. Please continue, let's, Daisy. Let's talk, talk about history some more. Yeah, history. A bit more history, please. Yeah, so she left out of school after a few years because, you know, the teacher who she'd... Um, you know, got on with so well, left the city, um, which was Norwich, where she was originally born and her family lived and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in her autobiography, she, she talks about sort of deaf education. And it's really interesting. It's it's a lot of issues that we would still recognise today. Um she wrote that I have never seen a deaf child's education well managed at home or at an ordinary school. It does not mm. seem to ev- be ever considered by parents and teachers how much more is learned by oral intercourse than in any other way. Mm. Saying that, you know, entirely relying on oral and verbal education for a deaf yeah, kid is just exactly. never going to be sufficient. No. And, you know, trying to do that without any adaptions is doomed to failure essentially mm-hmm. it, it is still a, a huge problem because i saw just before christmas um 2022 that um the local deaf unit that was at a um school close to where i grew up in north london is having its budget massively massively cut and so there's going to be swathes of children you know hard of hearing deaf children in islington who had a place to go that was an integrated school where they were supported with accessible education who are now going to have to go out of catchment are going to be you know 40 minute bus journeys and stuff just to get to school Mm. it's It's you know that that kind of yeah yeah because there's not i think that works i i mean obviously i i don't have 
hearing loss so i don't know what the experience is but i think that work could be done to make our mainstream education system more accessible to people who you know can't intake oral with i am um, i went to a i went to school with a a a boy who was deaf profoundly deaf he was one of the first people in the uk to have a cochlear implant put in to his ear and he had a uh, interpreter that just followed him round round all the time and he the interpreter stood up in class and would sign along with the teacher so he could understand what was going on and on the days where if she couldn't come in for any reason he was sort of like stuffed really because mm-hmm. he couldn't take in the information like um everybody else and I think that's just it's something as simple as sticking an interpreter into a room makes everything so much easier and I don't know why that isn't there's a real for some reason a real there's a real difficulty in sourcing people who have got that specialist yeah. sort of skill but it's to like, be able to, to you know it's like it, when interpret. when there was um the covid pandemic on and there was countries had the interpreter signing and then our country just like oh yeah there's not enough room mm. for an interpreter mm. and the prime minister and i'm like that is a load of bollocks you have just had a new media room that is a load of bollocks. And they were like, oh, well, yeah. we'll put it on the BBC News channel. No, put an interpreter, just put an interpreter in the corner and let them sign. I just don't understand yeah. it. I mean, I know a little bit of sign language because I thought it was communi- It was important for me to communicate with the deaf community. It's part of my job. And I'm a bit rusty because, if I'm honest, I don't use it that often. But it is a skill that I've got. And I am in awe of sign language interpreters, how they can so quickly interpret the information. It's a, it's a proper, proper say, skill. It's the, yeah, it's the hearing and then interpreting. Processing and then out yeah. again. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, mesmerised. Yeah, the, uh, the communication support workers that they um, would use for deaf students in schools mm-hmm. are only required to be a level three in BSL. And I, mm. I did my level three in BSL. And when I was finished, I was like, what you mean? At this point, I could go into a sc- That's insane. No, I can't do that. <laughs> of course I couldn't do that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm only level one and I am rusty. Like, yeah. Was BSL around when Harriet was growing up? I don't know when BSL. No, I don't came, either, actually. So, so it's signing as a concept would have been it might not have been the the kind of um unified language that mm. we're we're familiar with now mm. um but there, there have always been methods of signing for communicating I, I, because she was she yeah. was not sort of profoundly deaf and she still had some hearing ability left um she, she didn't kind seem of to use yeah signing in any way okay we haven't got past her school her school years. Yeah. <laughs> We're like a solid 40 minutes in. <laughs> we'll yeah. shut up. I mean, there was... Her autobiography also featured su- what I've labelled here as some bullshit. Um, <laughs> right. Which, thankfully, I don't think is still um, the believed case for <laughs> But it was people. her autobiography. This is so... her autobiography, yeah. So she wrote... Too often, also, the deaf are sly and tricky, selfish and egotistical. Okay. Um... 
So that that I mean, to me speaks to some kind of like internalized ableism. thing, yeah, yeah where yeah, where yeah. She, she feels that like people needing to do like special things to accommodate deaf people, she feels is egotistic. That's how yeah. I interpreted yeah. it. Like they're making yeah. demands because they're yeah. deaf, and you should do this for me. Yeah, yeah, I but understand. it's it's but it's strange because she actually essentially describes the social model of disability really? you know, in, yeah. in a book, it's like long before you know we anticipate it having been understood so it's it's quite strange how she then veers towards that when talking about deafness it's interesting that those that that would be how she kind of describes it as well because i think from things i've seen and heard people saying about the deaf community i think that there is still this ableist kind of idea that the deaf community like almost like a secret society Mm. it's like super insular and like keeping keeping stuff from us yeah i know that i know that quite a few when i was learning sign language my tutor actually said to me because she was deaf she said I don't really like I don't I don't like the term disabled I'm not disabled I'm deaf mm. and so I can kind of understand where that theme comes from uh, you know and, it's just how you identify yeah. isn't it really and I think that there is something um if your only impairment and, and I know that actually lots of people in the deaf community don't consider themselves impaired but if your only difficulty is is hearing communications yeah, yeah. And you're able to communicate without using spoken language and you're surrounded by people who can also communicate back with you. Yeah. Then I can see how in a lot of ways, actually, you're not disabled because it's, you know, it's not... (laughs) It's not your problem that other people don't speak this is the same language as you it's like me going oh well you're disabled because you're french and you don't speak english mm. yeah um, yeah so, so i can understand it as a concept yeah i think a lot of hearing people have like real almost unease with the idea that deaf people don't consider themselves to be impaired in any yeah. way yeah it's like suspicious yeah 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 like they've yeah. the idea that um people can be happy to be deaf and not want yeah. to change like i've had arguments with people about this before where you know i've i've said that i will never consider deafness on its own as a detriment no no because you know no. i've uh, you know i've seen that it's not these people say that it's not you know i can understand how you know losing your hearing gradually can you know would be considered by a lot of people as an impairment because they are losing something they once had but you know for the deaf community no, it's just another part of them. It's a, it's an identity. It's their community, and yeah, exactly. the fact that people can understand that it's that it's not a detriment means that you know, kind of, that society is gradually removing those spaces where you know deaf people can, co- you know, like deaf clubs and mm. you know social areas and things where you know people can have their community where it's not a detriment and i think you know if if what you if if what you want to say is we don't want to make the deaf community i am putting quotes around it kind of insular and and isolated within only being able to communicate with one another then 
start teaching BSL to fucking children mm. so yeah. that hearing people yeah. can communicate with deaf people without having to go to special classes that it's they so pay Im- for. Yeah, that's so important. Like, I, I would have... They're so busy teaching us French GCSE. Yeah, it, nobody, it cost, and nobody thinks. It cost me so much just yeah, to get up me to too. level three. Yeah. It was so expensive and most local authorities won't fund BSL lessons for no. parents who have a deaf child. And yes, that is disgusting. That is absolutely disgusting. There I are, think. There are others that will only pay for one parent Jeez. to do it and others which I will mean, pay for parents make... but not siblings or grandparents. That, it just makes no sense to me whatsoever at all. Like, if my child was deaf, I sh- it's my right to be able to communicate with that child. And, you know, it's not, it's not, they're not saying, oh, I fancy learning sign language as a New Year's resolution. It's like, I need to communicate with my child. And, you know. And I know it's, it's because the level of resources you would need to learn BSL versus Braille is different. But I've told my local authority i wanted to learn braille and they gave me a book and i was like awesome and that was 10 years ago and that book is still sitting on my shelf and no one's asked for it back <laughs> and i still haven't learned braille <laughs> it's but, just to make uh, you look like you know what you're doing <laughs> <laughs> but the like the the point still stands that they're like oh blind people they've got to be able to read yeah. Don't, let's not worry about deaf people being no, able I think to it's speak to each other and be so, spoken to. And I would have loved to have done like more levels of the site, but I just I couldn't afford it. It's, you know what I mean? It's um yeah. It was so expensive. The only reason that I could afford it is because I was otherwise really ill at the time. I was so those lessons once a week were the only thing I was doing. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. I wasn't going outside. No, no. <laughs> That's the only reason. Yeah, and you were also practicing during the week as well. It's just, yeah, yeah. It's it's um, and I, yeah, I, but I thought it was something that was very important to my job, and it's, I, I wanted to be as inclusive as possible. So it was important to me that I at least, at least, got my level one. Um, I think it's really cool. I'd really yeah. love to be like to be able to like. I could I could learn to sign, but I would really struggle to actually have a conversation with anybody because I wouldn't be able to see well enough to see what's being kind of said to me. And I don't know about you, Daisy. When I was learning, I it, for ages it just was not going in. I couldn't remember anything. And then one day I went in and everything just clicked, and I was like, "Oh, I understood what you said." Like, like she asked, <laughs> the the lady asked me what I did on my bank holiday, and she we like she signed it and i was like i understood what she, she did she didn't open her mouth i understood what she said i was like yes it's it's going in um and that moment of oh my god i can do it was like yeah i could do this brilliant but it's the, the, the struggle like to get to that point i was like i can't do this my fingers won't communicate with my brain and but yeah once i'd got it i was like yeah this is, the sense of achievement was amazing I think the one thing that, you know, is obviously very different for the world, the deaf community now versus when Harriet was alive is, um, you know, we're, I, I was, one of my colleagues was working with a young person with a learning disability and um, hearing loss recently. And um, we were talking about how to improve their 
sort of ability to communicate with like going into shops and stuff like that independently um and there's so many apps there's mm. so many apps that will just do like text to speech or like you know apps created specifically for deaf people to help mm. them with communicating mm. with hearing people which i think you know could yeah. potentially be really world changing if <laughs> if the if the non-disabled community knew about it and listened yeah the problem is a lot of those things are really flawed yes in yeah in a lot of way like i've you know you see constantly these things that are like oh you can speak or like you can do sign with these gloves and then it'll turn into text and like they're pointless (laughs) because yeah Every sign means about six different things, depending on what yeah. your face is doing. And it, exactly, I was about to say facial expression and the way you move your hands and it's a, well, yeah, even when I your started, body language. Yeah, when yeah. I started my level three, we did an entire weekend on our eyebrows. Really, about where, where your eyebrows are at any given mm. time when you're saying something to denote when it's like a question or a statement or yeah, because yeah. it, it changes so much of the meaning. Mm. It's fascinating. So Harriet, I guess, had to had to rely on her pen, then her pen and her ear trumpet. Yeah, and really, I think probably just you know faked her way through a certain amount of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's the only the only way of doing it. Uh, yeah, she was sixteen when she was sent off to Bristol, where I am naturally the posh bit of Bristol, so not where I am. <laughs> <laughs> For, for, partly for education and partly for her health. She had an aunt who lived there. But she was, you know, pretty happy there. Apart from, you know, being a bit homesick. I mean, you know, she spoke of being kind of consistently unhappy as a child. Sort of, you know, mm. like probably what we would, you know, now deems like panic attacks and anxiety. And, you know, mm. obviously, you know, difficult to reverse diagnose people. Blah blah. blah. I, f- I feel like we've probably got a disclaimer somewhere on the podcast which is yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> reverse I, I, diagnosing not, people should... from history is difficult yeah i, I Don't feel like me. if not we should certainly add one yeah we've got a library we a of disclaimers of... <laughs> yeah. yeah we do we do a lot of reverse diagnosis and judgment of dead people's uh decisions and opinions yeah. so <laughs> but yeah so i mean you know she was consistently unhappy as a kid and you know contemplated suicide so that she could you know join her god in heaven and things like that mm. but she was much happier in bristol although sorry what just i i'm fairly certain there's like a whole thing in the bible about how you're not supposed to do that this is because it's they were unitarians okay. which was a bit more uh free and liberal there was uh you know she had no reason to believe that you know the the method of her death would affect her entry right. into heaven Okay. But yeah, she was quite a bit older than the other, you know, girls in her class at the school in Bristol. Although she was able to, you know, spend some time with her cousins who were, you know, very well read and educated and, you know, have those sorts of experiences. But yeah, her deafness was much worse by that point, which made it very difficult to keep up. So most of her education at that point was done with sort of, you know, private study, sort of, you know, going away with the books and, you know, reading them and learning the stuff on her own. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, she did a lot of walks around the area. 
So, I mean, here we just have a list of places that I'm familiar with and you're not. So I'll just yeah, say okay. she went on a lot of walks. <laughs> well, we'll include a map of Bristol <laughs> in, this, in the notes. It does feel like a trope of like that sort of time period of just young women going out for walks with like books of poetry. Mm. So to contemplate life. Yeah, mm. I mean, I don't mm. think she met anyone particularly attractive on a horse. So no, I, I guess say, not. The, not yeah. the whole thing. That's, that's not Bridgerton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, she she left Bristol kind of like you know a year and a half later and was apparently less fearful more open more religious but also sicker okay okay so wins and loses general... i guess <laughs> Do you know, it sounds like general leveling up across yeah. all uh... <laughs> yeah just like me but like 90 percent more <laughs> yeah full fat harriet <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. But yeah, so she, she was frustrated by this idea that, you know, the women were supposed to, you know, stay at home and be homemakers and sew and, you know, always ready to receive visitors. And so, you know, she continued teaching herself about, you know, philosophy and mm-hmm. history and politics and all things like that. And, you know, being interested in kind of social causes. And she started to write anonymous articles for like like lady whistle down in bridgerton sort of yeah except yeah. not gossip no not gossip and more preachy yeah sort of yeah so it's for a unitarian <laughs> magazine yeah but one of them was called on female education right which is sort of you know about well schooling for girls really mm-hmm. clues in the title yeah <laughs> and um it was her brother who said that she should start writing full time. Leave it to other women to make shirts and darn stockings, and you devote yourself to this. Yes, that's what he said. Cheerleader, you see? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it's pretty. It's pretty progressive, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, at one point she became engaged to a friend of her brother's, but he died. Their relationship was troubled, as they called it. Oh, okay, and she was, you know sort of upset but she was sort of relieved that she didn't have to get married there are a number of people now who say become like a wife yeah a number of people now say that she was probably gay Mm. although you know obviously never well almost certain that she never acted upon this she had you know a lot of like quite intense and profound sort of friendships with women and you know but this is speculation as well and much like we can't reverse diagnose people we can't really reverse out people no but that's you know the the generally held opinion is that she was probably gay or you know at least bi or queer yeah well they you know if you need some more proof the uh the voters of vipfaq.com uh have voted 100 <laughs> percent that she was gay so there is that Okay. And is that four people voting? <laughs> uh, it didn't give a number. It could have been yeah. one. <laughs> there, there was also uh, publish. <laughs> yeah, there was also like a section of um, the website which is like, are there what what was Harriet Martinez's hair like? Are there any shirtless pictures? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great website. Highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. 
It does remind me a little bit of I was randomly looking at our uh, Apple reviews for the podcast the other day and I was like, we've got five stars, but that's because we've got like 12 ratings. 15. So, 15. 15. My mistake. Um, still pretty so good. if you think we're terrible and you want that star rating to look more accurate, then then go head over to Apple Podcasts and rate us. Don't want to give us less stars <laughs> than five. What is wrong with you? I, I mean, at this point, I'll just take a rating. Well, so. yeah, to be fair. I mean, to keep a five stars consistent over 50 ratings is really good. Yeah. Yeah? I. Why are I, you annoyed about this? Yeah. I'm not annoyed. I'm yeah, not sure. Stop, stop just... telling... <laughs> yeah. just, just give us our three and a half, two stars, whatever. Like, I was, I no was more just, than I was... three. <laughs> I was really impressed to see that we'd got five stars and then I realised that it's probably the same four people just rating us over and over again. <laughs> One of them's probably Lucy's mum. So. No, no, I don't think so. Mum doesn't even listen to this podcast, so I, it's not my mother. Okay. Or my sister. My sister doesn't listen either. Thanks for the support. Thanks. <laughs> None of my family listen. My no. my aunt said, "Oh, Richard the Third's coming out soon." When I saw her at Christmas, she's like, "I'll have to make sure I listen." And I was like, "You won't like it." <laughs> Again, thank you, <laughs> thank you for the positive marketing of our podcast. You're not going to like it. It's not your cup of tea. We, we appeal to a niche audience. Listen to me. I don't think listen. my seventy-seven year old auntie listen is one me. of them. Listen to me, right? All it needs to get. A- to get count of the listen is 60 seconds. She'll only have to listen to the podcast and the disclaimer and then turn it off. What is the listen? <laughs> so what Lucy is saying is, listen to the first 60 seconds of the episode, give us five stars and then fuck off and do whatever you want again. <laughs> Welcome to the Labour Podcast. I'm Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Daisy. Carry on. No, I'm just trying to think of... of who that I know who listens. I know my friend Flick has at least listened to one episode because as a result she bought me this microphone. Yes, yeah, I remember. I think that was the first episode. Hi. You sound shit, let me buy you a microphone. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Can't bear to listen to you anymore. You sound like you're in the toilet. I have a whole playlist of songs that sound like they've been recorded through a crackly potato. <laughs> so I could add that one episode of the podcast to that playlist. Yeah, fab- fabulous. Oh, uh, Where were we? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, in sort of 1826, so her father had had sort of, a, you know, family textile business. But um, he died in... 1826 and then three years later the business failed i guess because nobody else knew how to do it mm-hmm. um and so harriet and her sisters all had to go out and you know make a living mm-hmm. you know they couldn't just be supported by by the family business anymore and so but i mean the, the default position would have been to be a governess you know go to someone's house and you know help look yeah. after their children like a like a nanny almost um but that wasn't suitable for her because of her deafness. And she could have made a living with needlework, probably. But, you know, she was a writer by that point. So she became a full-time writer. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a story called Berkeley the Banker, which was based on, you know, the experience of the business going under and, 
you know, having to go out and find work. And supposedly it was a it was a pretty it was a pretty faithful account of the event, which is good, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. Is that a compliment? I, I suppose. I, say, I think it's is what you're. Lo- it depends what you're looking for in your uh, your story writing. If it's riveting fiction, then um, I'm not sure a accurate account is. Yeah. Um, but you know, if if you want something that you can take to a judge, then it sounds like Harriet's your girl. Yeah. So yeah, so she she launched um, a series of writings called Illustrations of Political Economy. Moved to London in 1832. So yeah, illustrations of political economy is is what a lot of people refer to as sociology now. Mm. Uh, um, yeah, she continued to write for that magazine that she'd written for before, with the article about girls' education, and also published two books about religion. But then you know, shifted to what she's most known for, which is. Illustrative articles about political economy, which is just sort of, yeah, she wrote kind of accessible articles and things. They were aimed at ordinary people, Mm. which, you know, helped people to understand all of the various causes for social reform. A bit like the Four Dummies series, like, you know, Microsoft XP for dummies or... Sort of, yeah, but it was in the form of, like, pamphlets and things so that yeah. it was it was easy to distribute as well yeah 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 and because you know this was a this was a big period in england for lots of reform pamphlets i was gonna say they liked a pamphlet then, <laughs> yes. yeah me too I, they, I just said it anyway like. yeah they liked a pamphlet and 1832 was also the year of the great reform act mm. and so there was you know it's a lot a lot reform. of this sort of social change stuff was kind of in the air yeah and there was a lot of these were really really popular so these are the um you know pamphlets and and stories and things that the then princess victoria was a big fan of Mm -hmm. um supposedly she you know skipped up to you know her mother and asked to order them because you know she wanted to read them all and was a big fan of her earlier work see i'm not familiar with queen victoria and her younger years so in my head it's just tiny round elderly queen victoria <laughs> skipping around yeah. like oh i really want to read some politics <laughs> albert so yeah but these were these were really really popular and the following series and so she was financially secure enough that she could mm. travel around america for the next two years wow she is doing wow. well, isn't yeah she? I, you know she was interested in europe but you know drawn to the usa to see how the new democratic principles were working mm-hmm. as she called them and um and and from uh 2023 we can tell you not well yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah she also claimed that she wanted to rough it for a while which no. <laughs> okay. okay yeah yeah fine is this this is her gap year, isn't yeah. it? She's yeah, gap year. Gap year. She was already known to be like a, an abolitionist. She was drawn into the anti-slavery cause while she was in America and, you know, campaigned on that and it became a passion for sort of the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And much of her work after she returned was a critique of how 
America had failed to live up to its aims of being, you know, a new democracy and was sort of, you know, quite scathing about how they treated women. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She, yeah, that track. She said they were given indulgence rather than justice. Yeah, yeah. again, that, that <laughs> tracks. It's really good to see that a full 200 years later, America's still not sorted itself out. Yeah. Yeah, so she also published another, like two novels, series of children's stories, and then did go travelling around Europe, where she fell ill in 1839. I thought you were going to say fell in love. I was like, yeah, no, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so she she went to Newcastle, which is where her, her sister and brother-in-law were. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, you were just talking about her going to Europe, and then you were and like, and Newcastle. Then she went to I was Newcastle. like, Newcastle, yeah, <laughs> exotic European cities. Yeah. Well, her brother-in-law's a doctor, so it's a good oh, place oh. to be. Yeah, but yeah. So, what kind of doctor? Just a doctor, you know, just a say, general medicine. Just, yeah, just the thinking, like you know got gastric issues perhaps going to see your ENT brother-in-law is not really going to help but yeah they didn't have an awful lot of suppose... specialties yeah I was going to no. say they didn't really have specialists about them they were only just past leeches yeah. yeah it's a case of try that might work try this <laughs> like have you put mercury on it yeah so yeah so she was diagnosed with ovarian cysts Eesh. Ooh. And a prolapsed uterus, and so oh. sort of bed bound for about five years, and told that her condition was probably terminal. Mm. But then she was suggested; it was suggested that she try mesmerism. Oh, get some get some magnets on get your the wound, bath love. With the ma- <laughs> get exactly. in the bath with the magnets. The man and his rod. <laughs> Stop it! You're so that'll naughty. Fi- that'll, I- that'll fix your vagina right up. <laughs> Stop it, you're so naughty, Daisy. I was doing so well with my laughing. You brought it up. Yeah, I, well, yeah. yeah about an hour ago. <laughs> We'd moved on. <laughs> so, it. Yeah, it took her ages to try out the mesmerism because, you know, her sister and her brother-in-law weren't particularly... Yeah, I mean, the, the actual doctor mm-hmm. was like, I don't know if hypnotism is the thing for your uterus. Yeah, they were, you know, sceptical. Did it work? Well, in, in the end, a letter from her younger sister, whose husband was also a doctor, yeah, uh, convinced her to eventually try it. Um, because her surgeon husband had used mesmerism for pain relief during operations and had supposedly had, you know, good success with it. And so... She had, you know, a number of sessions of mesmerism and was, you know, a big fan of her mesmerist and Um. she believed was cured from it. She became sort of... A big big fan of a mesmerist. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Well, yeah, so it it was a source of contention amongst her and her sort of favourite brother because he'd always been like her oracle as it were and he felt like he'd been usurped by her mesmerist. The mesmerist. <laughs> and so it was like a real rift in their relationship. I think that was a bit of a theme amongst the kind of mesmerist community though wasn't yeah. it? Because certainly for Mesmer he was like 
it was a it was about the that law of attraction wasn't yeah it? yeah and yeah, so yeah people who quote unquote he treated um that like became quite like enthralled Obs- and obsessed him. with him a little bit yeah yeah mm. yeah. yeah absolutely so yeah so after after well she was cured and symptom free she went to moved to the lake district built her own house started a load of new books and articles and you know all sorts of work that she hadn't done for you know years since being confined to her bed does sound like someone who's no longer crippled by uh you know ovarian and u- uterian pain uterian a word uterine uterine, uterine. yeah that's probably better yeah yeah so i mean then she you know published her what is indeed her most controversial book which is the letter on why the... i like mesmerism yeah uh, basically yeah <laughs> <laughs> letter on the laws of man's nature and development yeah. so it you know publicized her belief in mesmerism but also rejected her former religious beliefs <gasps> wow what wow did, did see that one come in no uh Somebody's been inside her ear, aren't they? Dripping, dripping ideas through. I don't think it's her ear. He's been inside. No. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, her, her, you know, favorite and closest brother was actually a leading figure in the Unitarian Church by this point. So that was also a, oh, a part of the reason why I can imagine. Her relationship like, why fractured. have you written? What is? Yeah, you can imagine yeah. it being like, why have you written? What is? What is this? Why have you? What? Pretty solid nail in the coffin of their relationship. Yeah. Well done, yeah. love. Yeah. You are off the Christmas card list. <laughs> yeah, but this, you know, this kind of love of the mesmerism and, you know, feeling that it had cured her also sort of ended her relationship with the sister that she stayed with after she became ill because, mm. you know, they had a natural prejudice mm. about it. Although some of this she also puts down to her sister also being unwell in, in right. you know, in the early stages of an illness, which would, you know, eventually kill her so that yeah could have been an element of it as mm. well mm. but yeah realistically her husband and her were you know against mesmerism they didn't believe it was a thing or that it worked and that it was you know charlatanism essentially it must be really if you genuinely believe that this thing cured you of what must have been an agonizing and upsetting and scary illness you can almost understand why you'd be like, I will sacrifice my relationships with my family. Yeah. Did it also cure her chronic, quote unquote, cure her chronic illness? Did her chronic illnesses get better or was it just specifically? So, I mean, her chronic illnesses, I think, had just always been a part of her life and related to her being, you know, sickly. There was, there was never a specific, you know, diagnosis or anything like that and Mm -hmm. so i mean you know she is described as still being chronically ill but i don't know whether that's just because it was so much of an element of her life at that point or whether you know that was also improved by this cure it's it's hard to tell Mm. she she kind of seems to um like designate them as separate things separate issues yeah yeah kind of like you know her, her sickliness a, you know whatever being being a big factor in in her youth 
and then you know her deafness being her primary thing and then her you know ovarian things being her primary thing she you know yeah she doesn't seem to you know write about them as if yeah 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 so yeah so it's hard to tell so yeah so she also worked for the daily news wrote thousands of articles for them and other publications and magazines and all of that published new translations joined other women to petition parliament for votes for women mm-hmm. you know she was she was pretty active with her you know activism and her writing mm. um but then she fell ill again in 1855 with the same thing or so yeah it it seemed to be but, right. but given that she originally fell ill in 1839 and then she was bed bound for five years before trying mesmerism so that's what 44 44 yeah so that's sort of a good 10 years yeah. yeah where she's been you know as she sees it symptom free mm-hmm. so she was sure that she was dying of heart failure so at, at this point she didn't know what it was but she was pretty certain that she was dying of heart failure um, to the point that she wrote her entire autobiography in three months. Wow. Um, which is, it's two volumes worth, which is something I can very much aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can do it. Yes, you can. Um, and even though she lived another 21 years after she wrote that bit of her autobiography, she didn't add anything to it i knew it. you were gonna say that i knew you were gonna say that i'll stop there <laughs> she was just like now nah, that'll do and so like one of her friends it's, had it's to write that, the last 21 years worth of her autobiography and just, like, it's, tape it it's to the die end young die young leave a beautiful corpse yeah but, like narratively yeah <laughs> so she funny. thought she was dying wrote her autobiography and then lived for another 20 odd years yeah yeah, she wrote, I certainly feel no dislike or dread of it, nor do I find my pleasant daily life at all overshadowed by the certainty that it is near its end. Which is nice, I guess. 21 years from now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so then she retired in 1869. So that's, what, 14 no, years, years. Yeah. after <laughs> she fell ill again. But she, you know, carried on writing um, and did a lot of, a lot of her writing was sort of campaigning against various things. So she specifically campaigned a lot against the Contagious Diseases Act. So this was a law that allowed women who were suspected of being prostitutes to be detained and forcibly examined and tested for Mm. venereal and sexually transmitted Mm. diseases and then forcibly treated for them. Right. to try and reduce the amount of venereal disease within the armed forces right. now okay. i would argue there is that... an easier way of doing that <laughs> yes. yes yes and it yes. does not yes. involve forcibly detaining women yeah one one feels that perhaps a conversation with members of the armed forces might have been a yeah. cheaper set and some effective... uh, set some boundaries in place <laughs> With the armed forces, yeah. Maybe. Given that their whole sort of thing is supposed to be obeying orders, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
you know, I don't know a lot about the army, but I feel like that's their big vibe. <laughs> How about we don't use sex workers for a while let's, and, yeah. and see what happens just to all because, the syphilis? Yeah. Just because we're feeling a little bit randy when we get home and we're like... Well, yeah, because it's like, have you considered your wife? Yes. Yes. Your, your family at home. You could always have sex with your wife. About <laughs> that for a suggestion. Yeah, maybe. Maybe try that. So, yeah, so she helped form the National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act, which is good and snappy. Uh-huh. Um, Catchy. It, yeah, she disapproved mm-hmm. of any laws, really, that only applied to women. Yeah. Which is, you know, fair Seems enough. Fair. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she eventually. Sorry, that sounds like I was waiting for it. But eventually did, died in 1876. And an autopsy later revealed that the ovarian cyst that she'd had, that had supposedly been cured by the mesmerism, um, mm. had in fact continued growing and had never gone away. And that her ill health since you know she became ill again in 1855 had been caused by that. But yeah. so you know it's kind of like oh mesmerism was, fake. but she went ten years without any symptoms. Anything? Maybe so, you know, quality like... of life wise, it clearly worked in some way. Yeah, it's weird, well, isn't it? I I told you my my mother in law quit smoking because of hypnotism. Mm. Yeah, like after thirty years or something, she's yeah, you know, stopped smoking. So it apparently it works for some people. I. I think that you have to what you have to think it will work for it to work. Yeah, yeah. I think if you go, so in I don't think with, it would work. If you me. go in with any level of doubt in your mind, it's like no, this is this is not going to work. Mm. Yeah. Um, but maybe it helped change her mindset. Maybe I don't know. Made her feel a bit more confident. Helped happy. her manage her pain. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Sort of, you just don't know. No. You know? Also, they didn't know what was going on internally like you know if it, if the cyst had damaged a nerve and so she wasn't getting any pain anymore because the sensation was gone you just don't know mm. no yeah. that was interesting thank yeah. you daisy so yeah she's remembered as the first female sociologist as well as the first person to you know attempt to make the ideas of social justice kind of accessible yeah. to the masses you said that she wrote about the social model sort yes of before we understood what the social model was yes she did um, um where did i write it that? <laughs> in her autobiography she okay she said that we sufferers meet with an abundance of compassion for our privations but the privation is, judging by my own experience, a very inferior evil to the fatigue imposed by the obstruction. Yes. Okay. So, like in other that. words, people are sympathetic about our physical deprivation, but that physical deprivation is much less of a problem than the exhaustion caused by all of the barriers. Amazing. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Mm. No, I like that. That's, uh, that's, that's quite... That's another quote for the wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting. You know, there's it's this idea that, you know, the social model is like a really modern... Um, concept. Yeah, concept and kind yeah. of understanding of 
disability, but it's kind of it's always kind of existed, just not necessarily mm. under that nobody's name. Gone, yeah, nobody's I, really shouted about it, have they? I don't think. I suspect that it's considered a modern concept because a bunch of non-disabled people started listening and talking about it and using it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I imagine if you asked disabled people 500 years ago, they'd have gone, oh yeah, no, I'd be much better if some fucker hadn't put stairs there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Pea shingle. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so yeah. she she said of of her improvement of mesmerism, something which I think is still quite relatable, which is mm. I could quote several medical men who reasoned that as my disease was an incurable one, I could not possibly be radically better. But on seeing all the things that she could do, you know, after that, and then the doctor said I'd never even been ill. I suspect that probably resonates with quite a lot of the uh, yeah. chronically ill community. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, any like every other tweet I see that's the uh, no end in sight void is just like my doctor says that I can't possibly have this symptom, but I have this symptom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? 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 You do? You can't walk, but you need a wheelchair. Um, what, you're not disabled now. You're not chronically ill. No, no. You make it up in your head. Yeah, it's like you can't possibly be feeling that. It's like, okay, I don't know what to tell you because yeah, because I am feeling it. <laughs> yeah. It is um, the closest I've ever had to it was a conversation with a doctor who told me that the flashing lights I see are not a physiological um, phenomenon. They are uh, they are psych psychiatric. She actually described them as, and I was but like. So your so brain, you're, you're... your brain is thinking there's a flashing light there, and your eyes are seeing them. Is that what she said, basically? That's that's what she is suggesting, and okay. that I experience them at times of stress. And I'm like, but it's a phenomenon that is experienced across the board for people with my eye condition, and I don't, but, <laughs> I, but I can't see when they're there. Yeah. So ha it's yeah it's um i think sometimes actually. things are just that is exactly what i was going to say daisy they doctors don't know and yeah they can't find out so they go well you know no i don't know well i know right, like the, the mental gymnastics that you have that they would have to do in order yeah. to try telling all of these people that these things don't exist yeah. yeah. And then, of course, you know, people don't go back to them again once the things haven't disappeared on their own, because why would they? And they go, see, that was proof. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Told you. Well, I, I'm not going to keep going back to a doctor who no. basically says, I don't believe what you're telling me about your eyes. It's all in your head. Yeah. No, I'm very lucky that I have never experienced it. And I think if I, if I did, I would just go, I would just lose it. I, I really, I don't think I would have the patience to sit there and go, oh, okay, I'm going to find a new doctor. I would shout at that doctor, kick off, and then tell everybody else about it, kick off, you know? I think it's... from my personal experience, when that happened to me, the thing about it, that kind of medical gaslighting mm. is, it took me by surprise mm. and it was delivered in such a calm, reasonable fashion yeah. that it wasn't until I sat there afterwards and went, that really doesn't feel right. No, it's like, not right. Mm. And so, you know, I think 
I could uh, I I could have gone back and kicked off, but I think that's part of the reason people doctors get away with it so often is because the way that we're trained to think about doctors and speak to doctors and stuff like that is my mum told me recently about my mum went into in the middle of the night when I was away at uni went into hospital with heart palpitations and uh, and the consultant came in to see her and said you've got indigestion and my mother was like I'm a 50 year old woman. I think I know what fucking indigestion is mm, yeah um, and it was only because I think she'd been sitting in hospital overnight before she'd seen the consultant the consultant hadn't actually had a conversation with her and the palpitation had subsided that she had the space in her brain at the time to go you're wrong how on earth could this be indigestion don't give me a rennie i want proper medical attention yeah mm. but i think that's like anything so like when i have experience and it's always in a hospital it's always in a place where you should feel safe people have said things to me you think that is outrageous you yeah it's like the story that you told me about that healthcare assistant yeah who who said can you walk at all and when i went no she went not 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 even a bit i went no she went oh if i were like if i was like that i'd kill myself and i was like thank you thank you so much and then like i told people afterwards and they were like you should report that i was like do you know how much energy that takes to go I'm going to complain about this. It shouldn't be... And, I think yeah, it's... and the risk of being then labelled as a difficult patient. Exactly, yeah. And you're so taken aback when it happens as well that you don't you don't go, how de do you have any idea? Or even, you know, how do you reasonably respond to that? Yeah, well, you don't, do you? Mm. Yeah, exactly. So, and you're in a hospital, so yeah. what you do is you sort of go, hmm, okay. and just make a noise. Uh, all I want... Can... yeah. Yeah, all I wanted yeah. was it was the d blood test done so I could get out of there and go home. I don't want to sit there arguing my existence with some healthcare assistant who really should stop being so nosy. Basically, I'm not going to sit there waste my time arguing with you. Um, but yeah, it's just exhausting, isn't it? The whole, the whole jumping through hoops thing, because you feel or you are told it's your responsibilities. It's exhausting. Anyway, on that note, <laughs> cheery. Uh, thank you so much, Daisy. That's been a really interesting episode. Uh, Alice, do you want to wrap this up? Because I always forget to say something. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And uh, Lucy specifically told me that you have to leave a five-star rating as well. So rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. <laughs> uh, you can also leave a review on, I think it's called Good Pods. Good it, Pods, Lisa? yeah, yeah, yeah. You can also leave us a review on Good Pods. Uh, please follow us on the internet. We're on at Label Podcast on all of the social medias. Um, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Label Podcast. If you like the show, you can rate, review and subscribe and you can follow us on social media at Labelled Pod. This episode was edited by Adam Hall. Our music was by Maisie Crunden and we'd like to thank the rest of the team involved. <laughs>